0: From the DeBartolo Performing Arts Center at the University of Notre Dame, it's Vantage Point with Augustine Fuentes.
1: Welcome to Vantage Point from the University of Notre Dame. I'm your host, Augustine Fuentes. The death of Justice Antonin Scalia, combined with the Senate Republicans' refusal to consent to any nominee until after the November election, has raised the stakes on an issue that should always be at the forefront of a presidential campaign, but usually isn't – the future of the U.S. Supreme Court. In nearly 30 years on the Supreme Court, Justice Scalia espoused a conservative jurisprudence and ideology, advocating textualism and originalism in constitutional interpretation. Scalia left a lasting legacy on the Court, but a controversial one. Whereas Justice Scalia was unanimously confirmed by the Senate, The man appointed or nominated by President Obama to replace Scalia will be hard-pressed to even receive a hearing. Merrick Garland is the chief judge of the U.S. Court of Appeals in the D.C. Circuit and was nominated by Obama on March 16, 2016 to fill the vacancy left by Scalia. Even before Garland received the nomination, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said the Senate would not confirm Scalia's replacement until after the 2016 election a historic rebuke of executive authority, and a challenge to the practice of considering each nominee on his or her individual merits. The death of Antonin Scalia removed one of the Supreme Court's most reliable conservative voices. Should the president be able to replace him now, or should the decision be left to the winner of November's election? What difference does it make? What does this tell us about the future of the Supreme Court? We are joined by Notre Dame Law School professors Richard Garnett and Jeffrey Poginowski to answer these questions and discuss the Supreme Court of the United States. Richard Garnett is the Paul J. Sherrill Fort Howard Corporation professor at the University of Notre Dame Law School. Garnett clerked for the late Chief Justice of the United States, William H. Rehnquist, during the 1996 term. Professor Garnett is a leading authority on questions and debates regarding the role of religious believers and beliefs in politics and society. He has published widely on these matters and is author of dozens of law review articles and book chapters. He is founding director of the Notre Dame Law School's new program on church, state, and society, an interdisciplinary project focuses on the role of religious institutions, communities, and authorities in the social order. Jeffrey Pojanowski is a professor at the University of Notre Dame Law School as well. After graduating magna cum laude from Harvard Law School, he served as law clerk to then Judge John Roberts on the United States Court of Appeals, and then to Justice Anthony Kennedy on the Supreme Court of the United States. He teaches and writes in the areas of administrative law, jurisprudence, legal interpretation, and torts, and has published works in numerous law reviews. Gentlemen, where do we sit as far as the Supreme Court is concerned? Is this replacement for Scalia, this refusal to hear the nominee, is this a new pattern that we're seeing, or is this part of a deep history of conflict in the Supreme Court?
2: Well, there's there's a long history, and uh, a deep one, as you put it, of uh, political controversy and contestation surrounding Supreme Court nominations. Uh, so it, it would be a mistake. We'd probably be being too hard on ourselves if we were to say, oh, this has never happened before. You know, Everything went smoothly in the old days, and, and now we're falling apart. Um, you can go back uh, to the very beginning and find uh, deep conflicts, sharp conflicts about uh, nominations and confirmations. What's, I think, very significant about the moment we're in now, and you talked about this in your lead-in, is that uh, the court's closely divided. Justice Scalia had been on the court for a long time um, with a a relatively uh, consistent and relatively clear approach to, to these matters. And the question of his replacement will most court watchers think make a significant difference in a way that some recent nominations and confirmations have not.
0: Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, the, the past two nominations and confirmations, you have a person right and left doesn't really quite work in, uh, in, in you know constitutional jurisprudence, but for lack of a better term, a person who's considered left of center replacing someone who's more or less left of center. Uh, and here, going from Justice Scalia to Judge Garland uh, would be a shift, uh, and and this close up to an election, you can see why people are 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 fighting over it. Uh, but one one of the, one interesting point this brings up is um, uh, how much of our that one, one point this brings up is, is the Constitution is not entirely uh, something that the judges interpret, right? Uh, so w- when the Senate decides that we are not going to confirm a justice until the you know the uh, until there's a future election, they're making a constitutional decision. They're saying it is within our power and with our authority to decide that we don't want to do this. And if we get punished at the polls for it, so be it. Uh, and there is a, there is a kind of an impetus in our constitutional culture to identify the constitution with the Supreme Court. Um, but, there's a, there, but there's a larger, more interesting question with respect to what are each individual you know, the branches constitutional obligations. And some things are justiciable in front of a court, some things are not, and it's not obvious that it may be politically imprudent for the uh, for the Senate to say we're not going to confirm anybody, but it's not obviously non-constitutional because they are constitutional actors who decide that we are going to execute our duty one way or the other.
1: And so this is not particularly new in the scape of things that have happened regarding the Supreme Court.
2: No, I'd say not. I mean, and in fact, you can get um, – there are incidents in our past that are much more kind of colorful and dramatic in terms of – pretty aggressive hardball moves. Some presidents, for example, would um, uh, defund certain Supreme Court lines in order to make sure they weren't filled. Or um, there was a times in our past when Congress just kind of canceled the Supreme Court's term to make sure that they couldn't hear cases that Congress thought were going to be inconvenient. So in a sense, this is kind of um, uh, uh, softball compared to compared to some moves. But, but we haven't seen this kind of impasse in recent years. Um, and that's, of course, a matter of great interest. But I think when you combine the fact that we have a, uh, you know, a roiling political season, deeply divided politically, the courts deeply divided, and Justice Scalia is a pivotal a pivotal spot, you put all that together, and you've kind got of a perfect hey, storm. Perfect yeah. storm. Yeah. So
1: what's going to happen? What, what's the outcome from this? Uh,
0: well, here I move from like political uh, from law professor to political prognosticator. Um, you know, if if the if the Senate Republicans want to play their hands smart um, and they want to be as, you know, pragmatic as possible, they wait to see what's going to happen at the presidential election. And if Hillary Clinton wins the wins the election, uh, they take Merrick Garland quickly to a vote because I think, you know, he is... I would I would say he's probably a person like, you know, left and right again doesn't work. He's left of what the Republicans would want, but he's probably going to be not as left as someone that President Clinton would, would nominate. So the realpolitik would... Dare just uh, dare President Obama to withdraw
2: Garland's nomination after the after, if if Clinton's elected. And Augustine, you made the point in your lead up that it's 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 interesting that although activists tend to care a lot about the court, um, and law professors tend to care a lot about the court, um, <laughs> despite the best efforts of a lot of politicians, it rarely shows up on the list of things that voters are most concerned about. Now, you know, again, a law professor can say. Wouldn't it be great if the uh, people thought more about it? Uh, because it is one of the more consequential things that a president does: is um, nominate uh, nominate justices. Um, but I, and there's been some effort, my sense is, uh, in the the current political season, to try to stir people up about the Republicans' refusal to hold the vote, or to stir Republicans up to make to motivate them to make sure that um, uh, uh, Secretary Clinton doesn't get the pick scaly. Appointment, but it doesn't seem to be working. It's, a, it's an interesting fact about our politics. The court the court has such a, a, a major role, especially in a lot of these hot-button, you know, quote-unquote, culture war issues. Um, some would say a bigger role than it should have, but it has the role. And yet, uh, people don't seem to prioritize um People outside the activist base don't seem to prioritize. Well,
1: well Jeffrey, uh, Richard, either one of you, what should people be focused on then? There's some pretty big cases sitting before the court right now that is now split 4-4. Well, I,
2: I mean, I wouldn't presume to tell people what they should care about. I think, I think people, all of us as citizens, have a lot of things that we reasonably care about, whether it's you know, immigration, jobs, war, peace, crime, punishment, all that good stuff. Um, but the Supreme Court, uh, just to pick one example— had a major case in front of it this year that involved uh, the question whether or not public employee unions, so think of, you know, again, um, public school teachers or uh, government workers and so on, whether those unions should be able to require uh, all public employees to, so, to pay dues, to pay into the, to the union fund, even if they're not members. And you know, the argument on the one side is, well, yeah, the union's doing work for them, whether they're members or not, so they should have to pay dues for that. The other side is, the First Amendment uh, protects the right of all of us to not be forced to associate with groups that we disagree with. Um, It it seemed pretty clear that the court's doctrines had been moving for the last 20 years more in the free speech direction and less in the pro-union direction. And a lot of court watchers were of the view that this year was going to be the year when the court was going to say, by a 5-4 vote with Scalia in the majority, that the First Amendment's freedom of speech means that you the, you can't make paying union dues a condition of a public job. People obviously you can have public unions, but you can't make dues a condition. That's like forcing me to donate to a candidate I don't like. Um, well, the decision came down 4-4, uh, and it you know declined uh, to take that step, which means it's, it's not really so much a decision because it's not it doesn't right. count as so a precedent. So in a 4-4, no. you just Go drop back you, to you there. go yes. with what yes. happened below, and what happened in the lower court was that uh, the federal appeals court that had considered the question had gone more on the what we will we'll call the pro-union side. So that remains the law in that area. Now the issues that means the is unsettled, mm-hmm. but if Justice Scalia's replacement is um, nominated by President Obama or by a President Clinton, you know odds are that that moment where there could have been a pretty significant shift in the balance between the First Amendment and uh, and union rights would have changed. So so the away.
1: landscape now has shifted such that there's been a tradition on the court of this sort of five four for over a little chunk of time, and that five four may be reversing then.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's right. And here here's one one case that was argued just yesterday, um, and it, it's likely to, there's a good chance it's going to be a four uh, four, and this deals with immigration, uh, and so. Is that United States versus United Texas? United States versus Texas. United States versus Texas. Very big case. So the history, you know, there's a long, there's a long history here. A number of times um, there, there's there been attempts to engage and you know, undertake comprehensive immigration reform uh, that have stalled in Congress, uh, giving giving you know, certain people a path to citizenship, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera and that couldn't work out. Um, and this, and I teach administrative law, so this is particularly interesting <laughs> for me. And we can segue into this because one of the, one, you know, one of Justice Scalia's long-running legacies will, in fact, be in administrative law, not in constitutional law. And We can talk about that a little bit later. Um, but one thing President Obama did uh, as as the president, he said, "Well, look, I am, you know, I'm I, I, as president, I am in charge of kind of executing the law, and I'm going to exercise my almost kind of prosecutorial discretion, my prosecutorial prerogative, to say I am going to withhold you know, removal." Uh, from a certain class of uh, of non documented immigrants, um, and also kind of you know in the, here one of the sticking points is give them access to working papers and certain government benefits, um, and it just so happened that the class of people, uh, the class of non docu- documented migrants, roughly coincided with the class of people who would have been protected by this legislation that passed, uh, and so one side of the story is like there was an attempt to get something through Congress. The legislation could go nowhere. We've got we've got gridlock, and uh, President Obama says, "I'm basically I'm going to withhold prosecution with respect to this class of people who otherwise would have been benefited through this uh, through this right. program." And so, on, on one side, it's like, "Well, you essentially have the president acting as if you know, basically legislating on his own." Uh, there, there is a law saying this class of people should be deported, mm-hmm. and he's deciding not to, d- to deport them, and therefore is essentially kind of doing through executive fiat what he couldn't do through Congress. The other side of the argument is, well, look, you know, there's no way he has the resources to prosecute every illegal immigrant out there, so he's got to make choices, and he's going to make choices that happen to kind of go along the lines with respect to his, you know, his pre-existing policy priorities, and. There's a number of questions going on there uh, an interesting one is you know did he go through the proper procedures there's you know, there's proper way there, there there's you know leg, you know legislative required ways you're supposed to kind of make regulations and make rules and this did not go through this, this this process of you know giving a notice and receiving comments and making a regulation. He said this is a guidance document to my line officers on the ground. don't prosecute along this kind of lo- these kind of lines so Are you, you know, he says, I'm breaking gridlock. Congress won't do his job. But, you know, do we have the imperial presidency here? Uh, And and the politics of it are interesting because, you know, Ten years ago, we had one side talking about presidential power is a good thing. We need the president to do one thing, and, and the Republicans <laughs> saying no, no, you know, and the Democrats are saying no, 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 it's bad. And now the shoes on the other foot. Right. Uh, and so, and this is and this is likely going to be a four-four. But uh, as opposed to the situation with the union dues, uh, the, the Court of Appeals in Texas, the you know, Fifth Circuit said uh, the the president has violated the you know the Administrative Procedure Act and failed to do it. So a tie here goes not to the administration. A tie the, goes for Texas. A tie <laughs> goes for Texas. And that's one instance where Justice Scalia might not change it, because he right. probably would have been the fifth vote. But
1: that's very interesting, because this highlights, I think, uh, where we started this conversation, is why people should care. Mm-hmm. This is actually the role of the Supreme Court to educate these kinds, exact kinds of things.
2: Can, can I, um, so, Richard, something you yeah. said just a little earlier, and again, the sort of why we should care, you mentioned the 5-4 thing. Um, five-four cases are dramatic. They tend to capture the headlines, the public attention. They often involve, uh, again, controversial questions about criminal procedure, or the death penalty, or abortion, or what have you. It's it's always I always feel like it's important to emphasize um, whenever we can reach the public that uh, the vast majority of the court's cases are not five-four. Um, right. You know, most are nine-zero or eight-to-one. So in the vast majority of cases, Justice Scalia's replacement won't matter because they're just smart lawyers trying to answer harder <laughs> questions. Um, but those aren't the cases that end up on the headlines usually. Uh, and in those areas, we have had uh, the 5-4. So in a sense, you could say that, well, if you, if, with respect to the law, generally speaking, does it matter so much who the replacement is? Maybe not. But with respect to some of these issues that tend to divide us, you know, affirmative action, crime and punishment, abortion, what have you, religion, um, it will make a difference.
1: So it matters very
2: politically, but might not matter in the long durée of the interpretation of the Constitution. Or at least not in the long durée of the interpretation of things like federal statutes and so oh, okay. on. Um, there, I think there's more consensus among the justices than we sometimes realize, which is you know, kind of a relief. You, know, you, you don't want the story of our court to be that it's just hammer and tong all the time. Um, but there has been a real divide. Not It's not, it's not a left-right, liberal-conservative thing so much. It really is a difference about, um, you know, what is the Constitution as law? How, do we, how should we think about it? Should we think about it as being, you know, a, a text that has a meaning and judges jobs is to try to identify that meaning and then just kind of apply it? Should we think about it as being more of kind of an ongoing historical development? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is something that is, when you, this is what divides the justices really.
0: And, and, there, and there's no necessary political valence there. I, I mean, right now the, the the originalist kind of text as law uh, approach is generally kind of associated with the right as opposed to the left. But um, you could imagine a you know a, a create the you know, constitution is an evolving living document, evolving in a way that. You know, Democrats won't like, right? And we arguably had that in the beginning of the 20th century with the Lochner Corps. So uh, constraint uh, constraint versus non-constraint is not necessarily a left-right issue or need not be in principle. And these kinds of decisions then, they matter to the broader
1: public, to the way our government is run, and to people's daily lives, and yet people are probably not thinking about that all the time. Well, we'll come back and pick up that when we return. This is Vantage Point from the University of Notre Dame. Welcome back to Vantage Point from the University of Notre Dame. We were talking about the relevance of the Supreme Court of this lock four four and how people may or may not be thinking about this. But let's back up a moment to the beginning of our show and come back to Antonin Scalia what really is the legacy? People are talking about this all the time, but do many people really know what his impact in 30 years was on the bench that is outside of legal scholars? What should people be extracting from this record, this history of a very prominent individual? Well,
0: I think one thing, um, well, there's a couple things we could take away, but I I think one thing for sure that we will take away, I think he has changed the way we argue about uh, about the Constitution and the way we've argued argue about the interpretation of statutes, um, my sense is, you know, I, I'm relatively a young pup uh, in this field, um, but you know, my sense is he has, first off, he's taken arguments that used to be, you know, perceived to be off the wall. You know, the argument that the Constitution should be understood in in light of the original public meaning or the original intention of of, of the framers. Um, that was considered, you know, kind of a kooky theory uh, in in the nineteen seventies, right? Or the the idea that text should be understood in right of their reason be clear linguistic meaning, as opposed to their broader purposes or the uh, or the unenacted intentions uh, behind the people who drafted them. Um, now, both positions remain controversial, um, and uh, but both positions I think um, are are points that. People have to seriously engage. Have they become more
1: dominant in law school, in the education that lawyers receive, or is this more of a theoretical argument that doesn't have application maybe outside the Supreme well,
0: Court? Well, I think in statutory interpretation, he certainly has moved the needle. Um, I think in the 1970s, from like the 50s, 1950s to the 1970s, there's kind of a working presumption that you know broader background purpose can trump text, hmm. right? Uh, and... Nowadays, although there's been some kind of wavering in the past, you know, four or five years, but now you will have, you know, there's opinions by Joseph Sotomayor or Justice Kagan where reasonably clear text kind of trumps background purpose, trumps legislative intent, and they say, you know what, we have to kind of grit our teeth and, and go with it. And, you know, no one is ever, you know, there, there's, you know, it's hard to say there's one dominant methodology in the court, but at least in terms of statutory interpretation, interpretation has become more formal. More text based. Um, And no one's, you know, know, it's not like you have nine thoroughgoing textualists on the court, but I think the center of gravity has shifted uh, towards more kind of text and structure based as opposed to kind of, um, you know, legislative history and purpose. Mm -hmm. And in terms of constitutional interpretation, I think um, certainly it used to be the case that, you know, I would imagine most law professors don't agree with Justice Scalia, right? I'd imagine a large number of law students don't. But he has given them, uh, in his opinions, he's an excellent writer. He'll be one of the, and he'll be, you know, probably in the top five or ten uh, write, <clears throat> prose writers in the Supreme Court. He's given some, them something to grapple with. Mm-hmm. There is a non-caricatured um, alternative they have to kind of wrestle with and answer to and account for. So if they end up not being originalists or not being textualists they're going to be better for it because they've actually confronted a really smart person who writes really persuasively about that. So and, disagreeing with Scalia is going to make them better lawyers. Uh, certainly, yes. And and, and and people who agree with him may agree with him for, for better reasons than they otherwise would have before. Or not. I don't know. Richard.
2: Yeah, yeah. you'll, you'll find uh, on, on YouTube, you can find these sort of uh, joke videos that law students produce for their talent shows. Is, and one of the themes that comes up a lot is... Um, you know, students who are more kind of on the left politically sort of agonizing about how much they love Scalia opinions because they're so much more interesting to read. (laughs) One of the places where you'll see sort of evidence of what Jeff was talking about in terms of Justice Scalia's influence uh, is precisely in the confirmation hearings of the last 20 years. Um, You know, uh, President Clinton's nominees and President Obama's nominees uh, clearly were expected, by the public, by the senators, they were expected to say things like, look, judges don't get to just make it up. Uh, the text of the Constitution controls. Um, is there room for evolution? People disagree with that kind of stuff. But, but everybody now is expected to say something like, the meaning of the Constitution isn't just something that we can kind of fiddle around with and update as we see fit. Or um, it, would be, it would be regarded, whether you were a Democratic nominee or a Republican nominee, it would be regarded now, I think, as pretty strange to say, look, when I read a statute, I just try to figure out what makes sense and then go along with it. Like, and so, well, but that was much more characteristic of, say, the 70s and 60s. Or the 60s, you know, 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was much more of a sense that the judge's job was maybe to try to you know, exercise his or her own judgment and make the statute work as well as it could. So I, th- I think that's a, a big area. Um, it, you know, Some other places where you'll see influence, actually, and um, you know, people disagree about whether this is a good thing or a bad thing, um, the, the way the court behaves during oral argument has changed That's what I was going to bring up. People have made a lot of points about that. Yeah, so for example, uh, sometimes people in the press will make comments and why doesn't Justice Clarence Thomas ask more questions, and somehow it's thought to be like he's somehow doing something wrong by not asking questions. But of course, for most of our history, the judges listened, and the lawyers made their case. And in recent decades, it's become much more of a sort of show. You had a couple more professors come on, like Justice Breyer. So they spar with each other, Justice Kagan. Um, and there's a Sotomayor uh, especially, too. So the bench is much more active, lively, interrupting. And did Scalia um, bring that up? I mean, was that you know, a major I think he contribution? Could, he had, as much as anyone, he deserves the credit slash blame for that, that change. Um, it's more entertaining to watch an oral argument now, that's <laughs> for sure. What about the uh,
1: strong clashing uh, in public that seems to have been
0: characterizing? So you, there's maybe is this just more reporting of this, or is this something that's always— Well, I, I think in some ways, I think there's more clashing in the written opinions than in, in person. Um, and, and this is from, you know, kind of experience in the court and just kind of generally knowing. He, you know, he has a very acerbic pen uh and you know as much as he, i like justice, justice Scalia, yeah. yes and as much as i you know i think his writing is really kind of engaging i wonder if sometimes the the pungency of his pen was sometimes counterproductive uh for his cause um but there there is a sense that even though he could be quite sharp with his pen he and his colleagues got along you know really well he, he and justice Ginsburg would go to the opera together and they would play uh, they would play cards together and um you know, I remember working with Justice Kennedy, and there was there was a very stinging dissent from Justice Scalia that came from a Justice Kennedy opinion, and it just but it just kind of rolls off the back in the sense of well, that's just Nino being Nino, right? So I think uh, I think they left a kind of you know, they would spar on paper, um, but they have a very, its almost kind of like we're talking about baseball, or they're almost kind of like a relief pitcher who kind of forgets the home runs. You know, they go to conference and they go to lunch, uh, and then they're just kind of—they're back being a collegial body. What about the influence
1: on, on law schools in general? Um, People—many people clerked for Scalia. Mm-hmm. How, how does that sort of cascade effect, or does it have a cascade effect uh, when someone is on the bench for that long?
2: Well, certainly, I mean, Justice Scalia had— has had a, a number of law clerks who've gone into law teaching. Um, he's, he's not alone in that respect. Obviously, a lot of a lot of the justices have had that. But I think Justice Scalia's clerks, uh, and they didn't all agree with him. They don't. They don't all agree with him. But they have had an experience of being pushed and challenged and engaged by somebody who's sort of as lively and smart as Justice Scalia is. I think that produces sort of um, uh, a lively mind, you know, and I, I, I have a sense that people who went through that experience are much better uh, law teachers and, and legal scholars for it. I mean, Justice Scalia would have encouraged, you know, engagement, drilling down. And he was a law professor before. And he was, and did he, was a, did he encourage that from
1: across the me. political spectrum, do you think, or did he truly favor particular ranges within that spectrum?
2: Well, Justice Scalia, more so than most of the justices, actually, um, Made it a point of of having law clerks who didn't all agree with him. Um, I think it's more the norm, sort of, for the Democratic appointees to pick their team and the Republican appointees to pick theirs. Uh, Justice Scalia was an exception. He he's known for having made a point of having it, you know, someone in the room who would who would argue with him. Not to say that he was going to you know sort of change his mind and, and turn on a dime, but he thought. And this is something that we try to do in law schools. You know, many of us teach in a kind of Socratic way. You teach by arguing. We, you, you, you often. I, I find myself uh, as a as a law teacher, you know, playing the devil's advocate, argue, turning arguments around. And and Justice Scalia did that uh, with his clerks and and in his work. Another re- way that Justice Scalia's influence, I think, is going to be felt in in the law schools, is what Jeff was saying earlier, is that. Um, those academics who are inclined to see certain issues differently, uh, they got to work a little harder. They, they, it's, um, you, you can't be lazy. You can't just sort of assume um, in kind of a complacent way that uh, the views of me and my friends are obviously right because there's Justice Scalia who's saying, no, you're not. And you, if you have any self-respect or integrity, you're going to feel like you have to actually argue back with that. And that, that, that changes things from... The, the way law schools were operating uh, in the 60s and 70s.
1: So do you think regardless of who eventually uh, replaces Scalia that there's going to be a sense of loss or a shift
2: in the tenor of the court? Tenor is interesting. I mean, uh, Justice Sotomayor seems to be pretty comfortable taking on the um, the hot bench role. So it, it's, it's not... They're both the, the Brooklyn seat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> things, might, things might not... Um, uh, return to the kind of the old quiet bench that might just be that might just be gone and it, it's not so let's say things flip from 5-4 one way to 5-4 the other they're still 5-4 so it's not like all of a sudden it's the era of good feelings in every case right I mean,
0: and Justice Scalia was known for his dissents yeah. <laughs> so uh, in that in that respect you know there, another dissenter may step into the breach yeah, yeah. So. um how
2: does the chief justice play into all of this He's in an interesting spot Jeff, Jeff knows him better than I do but um, so far his view seems to be and I, my own view is this is the right way to think about it is that's not it wouldn't be appropriate for him to sort of weigh in mm-hmm. on the on the political battle yeah um, that there's a real norm of you know separation of powers here and even if he has views about how it might be convenient to have nine rather than eight uh, I think he knows that he he wouldn't say them um, Certainly if you're the chief justice, uh, it matters whether you're in the majority or in the minority, because you're, uh, you're the one who assigns opinions, and all things being equal, you'd probably rather be assigning majority opinions than minority opinions. Um, but uh, you know, f- for John Roberts, w- with respect to many of the things he does, again, most courts, most cases aren't 5 4. And in addition to being one of the nine justices who decides cases, he really is, in many ways, the, the head of the judicial branch. And he has a lot of administrative and bureaucratic responsibilities, and it's kind of his job to help make the court run smoothly. So I imagine that, you know, if you're, if uh, if you're John Roberts, this is one issue on your plate, but but far from being the only one. So this is probably not the first thing on the minds of the eight
1: Supreme Court justices. Well, it depends on what they're doing, right? <laughs> you know, so th- if
0: this is going to be a seven-one case, you know. Ugh but you know in the cases that are four four or they're trying to decide whether's you know is there a way we can make this five three that's going to be on the forefront of their minds for sure uh, and when they're kind of when they're kind of thinking strategically about you know should we grant cert you know should we grant review on this one you know let's can we count to five here that's going to change or I'm thinking about who who you know who do I assign this opinion to that's obviously going to be on their minds um, um, and some of the more salient cases that happen to be on the you know the covers of the newspaper but a lot of times you know probably not. If if things change radically in the short term future, and and Merrick
1: Garland was uh, uh, to become a member of the Supreme Court, potentially, how would that shift things? Or,
0: well, so I can give you an, an I guess one or two anecdotes, um, and and this may not be representative. You know, a couple anecdotes is not you know not data, uh, but two of the most I, I teach administrative law, which is the law governing administrative agencies. So, if the Environmental Protection Agency decides to create a regulation governing you know clean water or pollution uh, what procedures they have to follow if you know have they followed the law etc two of the most consequential uh, um, administrative law opinions in the in the past two years were five four votes uh, one was you know whether you know to you know whether or not the the EPA can you know regulate uh, carbon di- uh, greenhouse gases under the Clean Air Act whether that fits within the statutory scheme, um, or, uh, or 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 uh, kind of basically kind of these two kind of big you know EPA cases, and they were five four. Um, uh, one was Michigan versus EPA. One was the you know Utility Air Regulatory Group versus the EPA. Both went five four. Both went against the EPA. Both reversed the DC Circuit. Both of the DC Circuit decisions were two one. And in both of those opinions, Judge Merrick Garland was in the majority. Mm-hmm. So, right, right there, at least on some major questions mm-hmm. of regular, and, and Justice Scalia wrote both opinions. Mm-hmm. Uh, just, so you have you have two Justice Scalia opinions going against the EPA. Um, and, and again, you know, it would, be re, it would be reductive to say that, you know, Justice Scalia doesn't like regulation. Merrick Garland does. A lot of it comes down to questions of statutory interpretation and the role of an administrative agency but in a regular state. it would still be a flip here. It would, a it, would have, flip. it would have flipped it the other way. And in fact, you know, some of the dissent in you know, one of the dissents was by a judge on the D.C. Circuit who was the closest you can get to a Scalia clone on the D.C. Circuit. So in an, you know, in an, in an administrative law, there would have been a very big change in the past two years right there on those on those kinds of high profile cases.
2: It, so one question you could ask is, if, if Judge Garland were to become Justice Garland, are there cases that were 5-4 that would be reversed, the court's own precedence? Yeah. Now that, that, that raises interesting questions about you know, whether judges, whether justices on the court stick with cases that they, they disagree with or not. It's, a, it's another question you could ask, though, is just in the future, are there cases that will come out differently than they otherwise would have? And the answer there's got to be yes. Right. I mean, again, the, the, the case I mentioned about the union dues would seem to be such a case. Um, a lot of people think that um, cases involving the, the scope of the Second Amendment will come out differently than they otherwise would have. Whether or not the court actually kind of reverses itself on the Second Amendment is, a, is another question. That's a, that's a more dramatic move. Cases about, you know, again, how much regulation of abortion is permissible, um, those will likely be resolved uh, differently than they otherwise uh, would have, so uh, those are the things that the papers care about. Can the states, can state universities use race-based affirmative action in admissions? Right, those might well come out differently. But I feel like I have to kind of get back on my soapbox here. There's a whole lot of cases that are just technical cases about how do you interpret a statute. Where Justice Scalia is a smart lawyer and Judge Garland is a smart lawyer, and they probably would have worked through it the same way.
1: So if this is the case that the majority of decisions that the Supreme Court makes are not these highly polarized decisions, uh, one could suggest that the public representation of the importance of this has been really skewed.
2: I think the public, um, so it's it's one of these great yes and no things. On the one hand, I'm surprised the public doesn't pay more attention to the court because some of these cases really are momentous and they're close. then another part of me wishes that the public was realized better than I think the public does, that a lot of the work of the court really is is just technical law work. Um, and I think a lot of people who are very partisan on both sides would actually feel sort of better about the court, maybe a little bit reassured if they saw that on a lot of these cases, they're col- these, these are folks who are different parties, but they respect each other, they're colleagues. They're working hard to solve a technical legal problem. And, and actually, they, it works pretty well. And, and if, if, if I could identify one goal from
0: – this is from public writing. Like one thing the chief justice would probably like would probably like having the court receive, court's public role received from the public eye. You know, we're doing law here. Uh, we're, not, we're not the arbiter of your social conflicts here. Uh, and that's one thing that might differentiate him from, from, some, you know, from some other justices.
1: This is Vantage Point from the University of Notre Dame. We'll be right back. Scalia. This is the section of the show where we open the floor to questions from our audience. Audience members, yes. Uh, You speculated that Garland might get a hearing if uh, Hillary Clinton is elected president. What do you think the Republicans will do if uh, Donald Trump is elected? (laughs) Will they wait to see who he might nominate or would they again rush through Garland?
2: Uh, that's a great question. And I, and I, uh, if I if I were a political scientist, like some of my colleagues, I'd have a I've had a I've had a better answer for you. I do think, just speaking as a citizen and not as a professor, that um, if uh, Mr. Trump were to become uh, the president, were to be elected, I think there's a considerably more uncertainty about who and what kind of person he would nominate than there is about the kind of person that Secretary Clinton would nominate. I mean, Secretary Clinton has a long experience in government. We can make confident judgments about the kind of judges she would pick. Same with uh, Senator Cruz. Um, With uh, Mr. Trump, I think it's fair to say that we really can't have much certainty about the kind of person he'd be looking for as a judge. And so Republicans might well think maybe we'll take (laughs) Judge Garland because they know who he is. Yeah. Is
1: Is it possible that the members of the Supreme Court are thinking about this?
0: It's going to be their colleague. I mean, like, I mean, <laughs> they, I mean they, they read the papers, they you know, or the, the internet versions thereof, uh, and they're, they're kind of, you know, they're kind of watching, and I'm sure they're curious about who their next colleague is, and I'm sure they have views about what kind of, co- you know, jurisprudentially what kind of colleagues they would like to have. So, I'm sure they're
2: thinking about this. I mean, all of the ju- all of the current justices, I'm sure, uh, know Judge Garland reasonably well. Um, I'm sure that. Uh, they all respect his ability as, as everybody does, as a, as a judge and a lawyer. I mean, none of this, none of the Republican position has anything to do with doubts that Judge Garland is intelligent or well-trained or um, you know, honorable. It's, it's, it's a political move and there's a long history of political moves in this area. Mm-hmm. Another question from the audience, yes.
0: Yes, I was wondering if you could like briefly define what the Senate is required to do concerning this whole nomination process because you have people saying, it's, do your job over here. And then other people saying, they are doing their job, what they're required to do. And so as a follow up to that, if you could comment on whether if they are following the letter of the law, are they still violating the spirit of the law? Because we have cases going four and four. And if the court's job is to rule on these, and they're just going back down, then are, you not, are they not then able to do their job as, a, as an institution?
1: That's a multi-layered question. Yeah, very interesting
0: one. Who wants to tackle it? So, the constitutional law professor here to my right can uh, (laughs) uh, can uh, correct me. Um, You know, I I don't. I don't think. I don't think the Constitution tells the Senate that they have. They have to do anything. So one way, one one answer would be: Well, well, they're. You could say they're following the letter. The Constitution doesn't require them uh, to uh, to vote. Right. and, and the objection, well, well, they're not following the spirit of it. But on the other hand, um, the, the, the Senate is supposed to kind of, you know, vote up uh, or is supposed to d- decide, you know, to a certain extent, kind of make a political decision about whether, you know, for the good of the republic, however we see it, um, should we have another, you know, should we have another justice, right? And so let's say you are a senator uh, and we can you know, flip the parties or whatever. Let's say you're a senator who believes that the person who's nominated is not going to do with the Constitution what you think they should do. Uh, whether they're too right or too left, um, part of your judgment as a senator say what is good for the republic. Shall I vote for this person through or not? Will I do more, you know, good or bad for the republic by putting this person forward? And you can imagine the exercise of judgment about you know, about advising consent can be like, no, I don't, I don't think this person is good, and that's you know that's my prerogative, and that. That's kind of the argument that's been ever but in this s-
1: case there wasn't about the person right, because this was asserted prior to the person yeah. being well,
0: yeah, followed. and they would but they would say I think anyone I think President Obama is going to nominate is likely to not you know yeah if if, if President Obama comes forward and nominates you know judge Brett Kavanaugh on the d c circuit, who is essentially kind of very similar to Scalia, they might change their mind, uh, but they may have a confirmed view about what the Senate, uh, about what the what the Supreme Court do, and since the Bork days, this is the 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 role of the Senate's kind of arrogated to itself, and this is kind of
2: playing it out in that, in that way. Yeah, I think that's right. So the, the, I think the quick answer is the Constitution, in my view, clearly does not require this in it to do anything, the, 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 the process of confirming and of nominating and confirming justices was made a political one on purpose. So if you think about the Constitution's design, uh, it's very important that our judges, our federal judges are not elected, right? It was, a, it was a big deal that we had an independent judiciary. That was important to the founders. Um, at the same time, um, because they realized they were setting up this institution that was going to be insulated from politics to a large extent once people got in there, it was no accident that they made the process for picking judges political. And it's no accident that they mixed responsibility between the executive branch and the, um, uh, the Congress. I mean, you see this in our Constitution all the time, the so-called checks and balances, where each branch can get in the other branch's business from time to time. So the president gets to nominate, the Senate has a decision about whether or not to confirm, and once that person is confirmed, if he or she is, then they join a court that oftentimes has the power to tell the Senate and the and the uh, President what to do. Um, it's it's utterly unsurprising, of course, that in the political arena, some people are saying, you know, do your job, and other people are saying, wait for the election. And if the if the parties were flipped, the script would be flipped too. I feel very confident. Um, it's it's interesting to, to watch. I don't regard it as being any um, the, the fact that the court's going to uh, move along with eight members and there'll be a couple of 4-4 cases. Um, on the grand scheme of things that the country's facing, that strikes me as kind of a low... Uh, low-level problem.
0: Particularly since we allow the court to decide, you know, give them the discretion to decide 75 to 80 cases a year. You know, if we're really concerned about doing business, we'd make them take 110, 120 cases a well, year, but we or, don't. Or
2: 8,000. 8, <laughs> yeah, or 8,000, right? 8, like, like, yeah. The court gets so in
0: the
1: big picture, when, when this is looked back upon historically, the historical notation will probably be the passing of Antonin Scalia, not the lack of...
2: Garland's access to the period. Think, I think so. I mean, this know, is not about Garland. There yeah. will be cases where we'll say, wow, the law would look different, look differently if Justice Scalia hadn't passed away when he did. Uh, and and we'll see how many of those there turn out to be. But I do think the, the the bigger story won't be, you know, there was an impasse between President Obama and Senator McConnell on the Garland nomination. It'll be more a story about here was this jurist who was on our high court for about 30 years, who had a, uh, an outsized influence on the law, on the legal profession, on law students, and um, and that'll that legacy will give uh, journalists and scholars a lot to work with for a long time.
0: And, and there'll be, a, and there was a brief interregnum before Justice So and So was appointed. <laughs> yeah, other question. Yeah, Justice Scalia said on a number of occasions that uh, uh, one ought not to consider one's personal policy preferences when making a decision in the court. And very famously, uh, when he first was elected, uh, President Obama said he would look for empathy on, on, in a uh, Supreme Court justice. To what extent, in your opinion, should a uh, Supreme Court justice consider the consequences of the decisions they're making? Well. So I, I will kind of give uh, I will give my kind of armchair constitutional theory speech here then um, so I generally think if it, it depends on what you think the Constitution requires of a justice right uh, if you think and there are you know there are smart, reasonable th- people who think the Constitution requires uh, you have these kind of you know, capacious generalities about equal protection and due process. Uh, and that they call on the justice to, you know, draw on their moral sense about right and wrong. And if that's what the Constitution requires of us, uh, requires of the interpreter, uh, then it's appropriate for them uh, to do that. Uh, you know, the Constitution kind of call, you know, gives them discretion to exercise, you know, to kind of draw on what their moral, what their moral sense requires. Um, if you don't think that's what the Constitution does, um, and, and you have to kind of do it on a clause-by-clause, clause, you know, basis— um, I'm inclined to think that the framers of the Constitution and the framers of the amendments were not particularly keen on, on justices doing that. Um, that you know that that's a, you know a goal you know you know I I, I think kind of drawing on your kind of extra legal empathy is something you try to, uh, you know, try to avoid. And no one, you know, even if that's your goal, no one's perfect about it. You can you could identify cases where, I'm sure you can identify cases where Justice Scalia is probably political instincts kind of swayed him one way or the other, which is maybe why he would try to hire what they call the counter clerk, the liberal, the liberal clerk who, you know, kind of, he's saying to kind of keep him honest. Like, you know, if you're a textualist, you don't believe that. Or if you're an originalist, you don't believe that. Um, but I, I think, you know, uh, you know, I'm, I'm more – I lean more towards trying to, you know, try to be you know, impartiality in the law to when, you know, when the law speaks, you know, reasonably clear or the legal materials tend to point one way uh, rather than the other. And, you know, Justice Scalia, I'm sure, could be, um, you know, guilty of not being impartial. But then again, sometimes his method would lead him to ways that cut against, you know, politics. You know, some of his, uh, his interpretation of the jury trial, right, you know. Let let a lot of convicted people go free, and was actually very pro, uh, pro-criminal defendant with respect to the confrontation clause uh, and with respect to sentencing. Um, yet he had some of the most kind of pro-criminal defendant uh, uh, you know results that came down because of his methodology. And you know he, I, I can't, I don't know him very well, but I can't imagine he's very particularly sympathetic to you know people who committed crime. Um, but that's where it took it.
2: Uh-huh. And I mean, like the, the flag burning case the flag burning case standpoint. too yeah. yeah so I, I think um, I think our I teach constitutional law I think our constitution was an incredibly significant and historic achievement um, and I think it was and remains imperfect I mean certainly the original constitution deeply flawed um, but, slavery but, yeah. but more than a few things that were really prescient and, and really good about it now all that said, it's not perfect, and that means that I think the Constitution allows some policies that are foolish, uh, and it has some features that seem kind of foolish, too. I mean, I'm from Alaska, so I like the two, state, the two senators per state rule, but most people disagree <laughs> with me on that. Um, but I think if, if you, uh, th- this point that the Constitution allows we the people, in quotes, to make decisions sometimes that are not all things considered the best move right? We take some things off the table. You don't get to have cruel and unusual punishment. You don't get to have racial discrimination. You don't get to have violations of the freedom of speech. But a whole lot of things, the Constitution leaves it to us to decide whether you want good policy or bad policy. And so, so long as we're in the arena where we're dealing with policy questions that the Constitution doesn't answer, then I think the court should do the best it can to not think about consequences, that that, that would be stepping into the role of, of of another branch. Um, the hard thing for the court, obviously, is to find the line between what the Constitution's taken off the table and what it's left to us. I think when it comes to um, enforcing the clear prohibitions in the Constitution or enforcing the clear mandates in the Constitution, then I think I also think the court needs to be f- courageous, I suppose, in saying, uh, we have a role. Uh, it's to uh, facilitate and interpret uh, this document and if you don't like the consequences, uh, fellow citizens, change the document. That's not, that's not on us.
1: So you, you brought up the example of racial discrimination, which is uh, not uh, one of those clear not allowed. And yet many cases sort of bend on the interpretation of what is right. racist. So in that kind of context, there's many places where not just empathy but sort of the – Broad-scale
2: opinion, or, or the ability to be swayed by arguments, let's say. Yeah, and I, 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 probably would have preferred if you know, if the president had asked me, not not so much the word empathy, which I think is really important in jurors and trial judges and 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 all of us as fellow citizens and, and legislators when they're passing criminal laws and so on. For judges, the the virtue that I want to see is humility, hmm. um, a sense that, because. It's easy to feel powerful. You have a black robe. You're sitting up high on a bench. You have a job for life. The
0: building has pillars. Looks like a Greek temple. Yeah, it looks at like your a office. Greek temple.
2: <laughs> I, I, I think it's important for judges to discipline themselves, to kind of get in the frame of mind that they're trying to answer a question, not with reference to what they would prefer, but to answer a question with respect to what did other people do, what law did. What, what did the Senate and the House do when they enacted that law? What did the president do when he d- took that legislative action? What did we, the people, do when they ratified the 14th Amendment? If a judge can, can keep him or herself in that frame of mind, that you're, you're trying to figure out what other people did rather than sort of search your own feelings for the right answer, I think that tends to be a pretty good guide. Is that a particularly high bar? It's, it's hard for any of us, right, yeah. and especially for judges. They're, again, they have jobs for life. Uh, they're called your honor, uh, they're pretty well paid, they're surrounded by you know, uh, lawyers who have to sort of uh, pander to them sometimes, it's, it's a challenge. So uh, I, don't, I wouldn't pretend for a second that it's easy, but if, if I would be looking if I were ever you know, putting together lists of people who I think would be good judges are people who I think would have the capacity to resist that temptation to be willful and instead to embrace this idea of, of humility and modesty.
1: Moving forward, do you think this is the kind of thing that we can expect from the Supreme Court? Or, as we've, we've both noted earlier, we're in a time of higher degrees of contention, uh, both publicly and, and privately, uh, in the members of the court and in
0: the way in which the public sees the court? I'm, I'm, not, I, I'm not particularly optimistic. Um, I, I, I think— uh, I, I, uh, I think one, I think one of you know one of the chief justice's uh, biggest gambits was to try to was to try to kind of recede uh, pull the court back from the public eye. Uh, I think that's one way. Roberts, Roberts, States. Chief Justice Roberts, and that's one way of reading his decisions on the health care cases, where you're, you know you expect a Republican chief justice is going to strike down this achievement, and he finds a way to kind of you know keep it alive. Um, one way of reading that would be, you know, I, I, I have no inside knowledge. I don't know his mind or his heart. One way of reading it is, is you know, he's just kind of doing, you know, he, he got scared or he got cold feet. But part of one, one reading of that could have been, well, we are going to try to kind of, you know, if you're angry about health care, write your congressman. Right. And, if there, and unless we're going to find a way that is constitutional, unconstitutional, we're going to let it stand. Right. Uh, and the thing is, I think you need a critical mass of people who have that view Uh, On the court, you need you need five you need five humble men and women, Uh, and 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 that's a and that's a contentious understanding of what the role of the Supreme Court justice is, and I don't see five people with uh, Professor Rick Garnett's view of of uh, well and, and and well. Maybe I'll be fair. Maybe they, they think they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. So I'm not attributing bad faith to, uh, to anyone. They, they, they think they're doing what the Constitution requires them. Um, but I don't think – I'm not as optimistic that there's, that, that um,
2: restraint is uh, is is kind of in, in, in the offing. Uh, One thing that maybe could make a difference just in terms of how this uh, – how we the people, all of us and our fellow citizens perceive the court would be if our friends uh, in journalism would – would try to stop covering the court's work in um, such kind of overtly uh, partisan politics sort of way like I mean, how often have you read a headline you know the court handed the Republicans a victory or the court dealt the Democrats a setback but that's not the way the court is thinking about what it's doing uh, it, it thinks about it was answering a question and maybe the Republicans were on one side and the Democrats on the other but that's a that's a way that I think the uh, the journalists could really play a a valuable public education role. We can move away then
1: maybe from seeing the Supreme Court as a a sports event or a kind of competition (laughs) to uh, more of a deliberation. Uh, And this is one area where maybe all the people who really respected and who disrespected Scalia would agree that the kind of uh, intense effort, intellectual effort put into those decisions uh, is something that we can look forward to. Absolutely. I want to thank uh, Rick Garnett and Jeff Pojanowski from the University of Notre Dame Law School. This is Vantage Point. Good night.
2: Vantage Point Radio is produced by Joe Stanfield and Seamus Ronan. Please check us out on our website at vantagepointradio.nd.edu. And now subscribe to our podcast on iTunes at Vantage Point Radio. Vantage Point Radio is a production of the College of Arts and Letters at the University of Notre Dame.